A very good morning to you. And wow, what an amazing time of worship. And what if I told you that our time of worship is not yet done? Because on one hand, we worship when we hear God's Word and we respond to His heart and to His Word. But we are going to have another time of worship later on. But there are also a number of other ways that we worship and we use our giftedness and we use our creativity. And I just want you to have a look at that picture and then have a look over there. And then that picture, and have a look over there. Can you see the part that sees on the left there, or on my left, uh, your right? So uh, I think that can also move us. And just everywhere we look, we're being reminded of who God is and what He has done on this day. And what a privilege to be able to preach about the resurrected Christ on this day. And so going into our message today, um, you know, I watched probably one of the best movies that I've ever watched uh, the other day. Um, I really enjoy the movie Dune. I don't know who here has watched it. Uh, Part of it, it's probably got the best soundtrack I have ever, ever heard. Hans Zimmer won an Oscar for it. He's an absolute genius. But the point is, I don't have time for bad movies, bad books, and bad TV shows. All right, if I'm going to invest two hours into a movie, it better be worth my time. And what makes a good movie? Well, a number of things go into making a good movie. But as far as I'm concerned, whether it's an action or a drama, it has to have a good story. Now, the experts tell us that whether we look at books or movies, or the old plays, or whatever the case might be, there are really only seven basic storylines that are employed by writers to tell us story. And so I want to tell you what they are. The first one is called Overcoming the Monster. This is where the hero or the protagonist goes out and they overcome evil. And so maybe a movie like James Bond or all the Marvel and the superheroes, superhero movies, those are all about overcoming the monster. And then there's Rags to Riches. This is someone who comes into great power or great wealth, but then they lose it all. And in that whole process, they discover themselves. They learn, they grow, and then they get everything back. And I hope Cinderella is coming to mind for you. Then there's the quest. And this is when the protagonist or the hero or the hero one needs to get themselves or something to a destination, and then when they get the thing to the destination, that's the victory. And so, of course, you're thinking about Lord of the Rings. Then we've got the story called The Voyage and Return. This is when the hero goes to a foreign land, discovers new things, learns some new skills, and comes back a changed person. And so we're thinking about the Lion King. Of course, we have comedy, Comedic movies, comedic books, and they they kind of always light, humorous. They've got some elements of these other themes, but there's always a happy ending. And for some reason, the movie I wrote down was Dumb and Dumber. (laughs) Yeah, my taste has improved over time. And then, of course, we've got the tragedy. This is when there is a hero. There is a heroine. There is a protagonist, but there's a major character flaw inherent in the person, in the relationship. And this brings about the tragic undoing 
of everything. And of course, you're thinking of most of Shakespeare's plays, but maybe Romeo and Juliet. Then we've got the, the storyline of rebirth. This is where the main character starts off and you don't like them. And something needs to change. They need to become a new person. And that becomes the structure of the storyline. What about Beauty and the Beast? And then the final storyline that people employ to make it stories is the storyline of rebirth. This is when the character has to change their ways. Sorry, sorry, that, that is the Beauty and the Beast story. But the point is these stories are what make the whole engagement of engaging in the story worthwhile. These are the stories that move us. These are the stories that captivate us. And when we get to the Scriptures, these stories are all over the Scriptures, which is why the Bible is still the highest selling book ever. But arguably, not only are all of these story plots present in the Scriptures, but I would say they are all present in the Easter weekend story. That when we look at the bullseye of our faith, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, think about Jesus overcoming the monsters of sin, Satan, death and hell. Think about Jesus who is the King. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, He abandons His riches. He comes down becoming a servant and then He goes back up to heaven with the salvation of the world. Think about Jesus who's on the quest as the King to save humanity. Think about Jesus who goes on this voyage from heaven to earth and returns triumphantly to heaven. And while Easter is maybe not a comedy, if you've read some of the Gospels, there's going to be a couple of moments where I think the writer wants you to have a little laugh out loud chuckle moments. And so, for example, John writes when they run to the tomb, he's like, oh, by the way, Peter, I ran faster than Peter, you know? I mean, why did he say that? I think he's up there saying, Peter, I'm still faster than you, but. And then, of course, you've got the tragedy of sin, the tragedy of death, the tragedy of pain and suffering. But then that tragedy is turned around with the resurrection and the rebirth that gets offered to us. And so this is the greatest story ever. And you know what the greatest thing about the story is? I'm sure you're guessing it right now. It is true. It is true. It's not just a story. You know, some of the greatest story writers knew this story very well. J.R.R. Tolkien, famous for writing The Lord of the Rings. Even if you speak to non-Christian fantasy writers and you say, who, who is your influence? Who got you into fantasy? They will all say, no, it is Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. And maybe when you read Lord of the Rings, it's not obviously, it's not obviously a Christian story. If you understand the Christian worldview and you kind of get into the world, it's all over there. C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, and he became a Christian. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, some of the best children's stories out there. But you know that he wasn't always a Christian. In fact, he was very anti-Christian and he was a, an incredible intellectual. And he was friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. And you know, they had this common love, this common love of myth. And they used to deeply love the old Greek and Roman myths. But their favorite mythologies were the Nordic mythologies. 
And one of the things that J.R.R. Tolkien, who at that stage was a professing believer, he said to C.S. Lewis, and this got C.S. Lewis thinking, he said, you know what? Christ is the true myth. This is the story that actually happened. And that's what makes this story better than all the other myths that you have fallen in love with. Subsequently, C.S. Lewis became a believer in this story. So we've got the greatest story on planet Earth that we're celebrating today. Last week, Sunday, we started looking at one of the greatest stories of the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus. And if we look throughout the story of the Exodus, we're going to see some of these great plot lines. We're going to see tragedy and drama, and we're even going to see some comedy. It's one of the greatest stories that highlights God's power, highlights God's sovereignty, And the reason why we're going through this Exodus story is because what the Bible writers do is they say, this story is fulfilled by the Easter weekend story. And so we recognize that what God did in Exodus was fulfilled when Jesus defeated death and came out the tomb on the other side. And so we're busy just connecting all these incredible dots between this story And that story, and I'm just finding myself grow even more in love with who God is and His incredible power. And so over the past week, we've looked at the slavery and the plight of the Egyptians. Just how for multiple generations, they were violently oppressed in the nation of Egypt. And how God raises up Moses to be His representative. He goes up to Pharaoh who really is at the sense of point of this evil and this oppression. And he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses. And so God sends strike after strike, blow after blow, plague after plague, showing that he is God, showing up the Egyptian gods, showing up Pharaoh who believed that he was God, judging them for their oppression, for taking out an entire generation of Hebrew baby boys. And then at the final stage, at this final strike, this death blow, the 10th plague, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And Pharaoh says, okay, get out of here. I don't want to see you again. And so God's people go into freedom. They were protected by the final plague because of the blood of the lamb that they trusted on that Passover night. And that is what we celebrated on Good Friday because we are protected by God's judgment because we trust in the blood of the perfect lamb that was shed on that Good Friday. And then they make their way to the sea. There's an army behind them, a sea in front of them. They're upset. They're afraid for their lives. But God delivers them through the waters. Just as we are delivered through the waters of baptism into our new future, our new identity. And we can experience the fullness of God's promises. And so that is literally where we left things off a few hours ago at the sunrise service. This climax of this incredible storyline. Now, if you've got your Bibles here, the very next chapter, we've just finished Exodus 14. Exodus chapter 15 in my Bible has the title, The Song of Moses and Miriam. Some of you might say, Stephen, I I don't remember that part of the story. That part wasn't in the movie. I don't understand. They've just gone through this water. There's this drama. 
there's this incredible victory. Why is the story being interrupted by a song? That's what today is about. So we are going to read the whole chapter. I know it's not often that we read larger portions of Scripture, but the, the, it will be on the screen behind me. Otherwise, take your Bibles home, read it for yourself, or read it with me here this morning. Exodus chapter 15. And just before we start reading, just to generally tell you what's going on here, this chapter is divided into two main sections. Section 1, which is verse 1 to 12, is celebrating what God has just done. And the second half of the chapter is celebrating what God will do. Okay, so it's part A, what God has done, into part B, what God will do. And so let's read Exodus 15 from verse 1. And then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my Yeshua. Sound familiar? The name of Jesus. Presence in this word. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord Yahweh is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Just press pause there. This is something that Jean brought out for me from all of her research. I'll talk about her book in a second. But this whole idea of the right arm was a phrase used of Pharaoh. This is my right arm in majesty and strength and power. And this whole story is saying your right arm ain't got nothing on the right arm of Yahweh our God. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger and consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. And they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Now, maybe you think to yourself, Stephen, that's kind of strange. I mean, all they're doing is recounting the story. There's really no new information here. Now, when we stand up and preach, oftentimes we do want to make the Scriptures clear. Sometimes we are going to hear something for the first time, not because it's something that Stephen thought up, but if it's there in God's Word, we want to bring it out like a jewel and we want to show you what is here. And so, yes, we're going to learn new things. But what is happening here is what is true about God is being brought to Him in worship. God doesn't need a new revelation. He's not bored of who He is and what He's done. 
And so what we're getting here in these verse 12 verses is just looking at what has transpired. It's not about new data for your mind. It's about your heart being turned in worship to God. Now let's read from verse 13. This is now the second part going into what God will do in the lives of these people. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. By the way, these are all the desert dwelling tribes of this time. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. This is Mount Zion, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Then we get to verse 19. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. This is just a, a prosaic retelling of everything that we've just heard. Then we get to verse 20. Then Miriam, this is Moses' sister, the prophetess. This is the second prophet that we meet in the Scriptures. Earlier we met Aaron, the prophet. Now we've got the prophetess Miriam. Aaron's sister, she took a tambourine in her hand and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Yes, we are allowed to dance when we worship our God. And then Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea, which is the same as the start of Moses' song, meaning they probably didn't just only sing this part, they probably just continued singing the same song among themselves. So where am I going with this today? Remember, we recognize we've just been through the drama of the story and now it's almost like we're being interrupted by a song and we're like, what? Is this a musical? What's going on now? Why is everyone singing? Well, what does it say here in verse 1? Then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. And here's the first thing I want to say. God's victory makes worship a priority. I'm sure they had things to do. I'm sure they're experiencing some form of PTSD. They've just been through so much in the last month. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what's waiting for them in the deserts. They've just been through such chaos. Yes, they've seen God's saving hand. But have you, have you ever been through a dangerous situation and you're like, yo, you know what could have happened to me? You're still freaking out. And yet they stopped and they worshiped. And I wonder sometimes if we have the same priority. You see, when it comes to our times of worship, we all have something better to do with our time. We've all had a busy weekend and maybe I need to sleep in today. Or I've got a party or I've got golf or I've got something else or I've got this, I've got that or I'm tired or I don't feel like it or it's raining or it's too hot or it's too cold. And I think these guys would laugh at us. You see, one of the things we sang about earlier 
when we're saved, and this is something that, an axe that Craig and I grind here regularly at Riverside because I want us to get this. So many of us have inherited this idea that being a Christian means I'm saved so that one day I get to go to the good place and I make it out of the bad place. And that's at the end. And that's only one third of the story. And while part of that may be actually true, the point of becoming a Christian is that today I enter life. Today I enter the kingdom of God. Today I start praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth today as it is in heaven. Not 3,000 years time or three days time whenever Christ is going to return. No, today I start living out of a new identity under a new lordship with a new sense of God's presence within me and empowering me today, this lifetime. And one of the things that changes in my identity is that I move from being a worshiper like these guys of false gods. You're like, Stephen, I've never worshipped a false god. Oh, yes, you have. You've worshipped sex. You've worshipped power. You've worshipped celebrities. You've worshipped your spouse. You've worshipped your children. No, Stephen, I haven't done. I promise you, you have by putting them before God. But one of the things that changes in us is we move from being a worshipper of false gods who will let us down. They're pharaohs in our life. And we become worshippers of the true God. That is part of who you are. It's not simply something you do if you've got time for it. Now, I'm not trying to, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm not trying to guilt anybody into going to church because that never accomplished anything. What I am trying to emphasize is if we get the victory, if we truly understand it, We ought to prioritize our worship of God. The second thing we see out of this passage is that worship is better together. I must say, I'm going to get emotional. The worship we had just now. It's just so powerful. So powerful. God's presence and the joy of being together and honoring Him in this way. Now, I've been reading a book just describing the reality we find ourselves in, this crazy, complex world with the many tides pulling us in so many different directions. And the author's trying to, it's a bit of a philosophical book, but he's trying to look at how we got here. What has changed over the last few hundred years to get us to this place? where there's so much craziness going on. And, and just to kind of illustrate one of his points, he looks at music and he says, listen, for most of human history, if you wanted to listen to music, you had to do it together. The average person in the middle of ages didn't have an orchestra in their lounge. And so you had to go with people. Or you had to gather around as a family around the one person in your family who may have had a stringed instrument or may have had a clavinova, whatever the case might be. 
And so music was always, by definition, communal. Now today, you can go to gym with your phone and your headphones, and if you wanted to, you could listen to post-punk Korean electro death metal sung by four-year-olds. And your wife can listen to Justin Bieber next to you, right there. Not judging anyone, all right? Now, I'm not saying that's bad. I love the access. Just going, oh, remember that song from high school? Just go find it on my phone and play it over Bluetooth. I love being able to do that and, and listen to the newest album. But what has happened is, while we've privatized music, we've now privatized worship. Now listen, please, please, please don't fall into the trap, the opposite trap of I'm only a worshiper on Sunday. Please be worshipers on a Monday and on a Tuesday, all the way through to Saturday, including Sunday. And I include being vocal worshipers. Worship God in your devotional time. Worship God in your prayers. Worship God as God shows you things of Himself throughout the day, as God leads you, as God provides for you. Honor Him, be thankful, be grateful, and worship Him. Worship Him in your obedience. Worship Him in your lifestyle. Yes, worship Him in the shower and in the car and in the quiet places. And... It's better together when we worship, when we get together. These guys didn't go into their tents and have a private little worship party. It says here, Moses and the Israelites, Miriam and the woman. It wasn't just Moses singing and the Israelites kind of watching going, oh, Moses was off there. <laughs> they were just in it together. And the dancing. And this is something we get to do every single Sunday. Do you know that singing is good for you? Let me tell you what I mean. Psychologically, singing fends off anxiety and stress. And by singing, I don't mean what some of us do. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I'm talking about singing when all of us are involved, all right? When we're singing, it floods our brain with the happy hormones of endorphins and oxytocin. It improves your, your mood and reduces your stress hormones like cortisol. And you know what the best thing about this truth is? You don't even have to be good at singing. Now, I'm not saying this is why we should worship. I'm just saying how good of God that when we come to Him, and it is all about Him. And whether I'm in tune or out of tune, I'm bringing all of myself and I'm honoring Him and I'm worshiping Him, that there is this kickback of blessing in my life. How good of God. Now, the next point should be obvious, but when we look at these songs, we see that worship is about God. Worship is about God. I've kind of said this already, but worship is when we take what is true about God and we reflect it to God. 
We take what is true about God and we reflect it to God, not to inform Him, but it's for our sake that not only do I know true data points about God, but my heart is moved. And I do that in worship. This is when we see the value and the truth of who He is, what He has done, what He will do. And we adore Him for it. And we honour Him and we magnify Him and celebrate Him for this. Now, I don't know if there's a Christian in the world that will say, Stephen, I disagree with you. Worship should be about me. But there are some very subtle ways that we do make it about me. The first one is sometimes we make it about our feelings, which is ironic because I was crying like a baby just now. But sometimes we say, worship wasn't good this week. And if we had to analyze what we mean by that, Yana, for some of us, when we say that, no, you know, I didn't feel, you know, worshipy. I didn't feel all fluffy and, and teddy bears and rainbows inside of me. Because I didn't feel it, worship wasn't good this week. And I just want to say that just because you didn't feel something doesn't make God any less worthy of your worship. Now, I get it. Man, we've just been through COVID and in many ways, we're still struggling with it. And on top of that, we've got all the other challenges of life. And I know that when we come to worship out of a tough week, it is very hard. I mean, what happens to our bodies and what happens in our relationships affects our hearts and our minds. I mean, the other day, I was washing my knife, and for those of you who know, I love keeping my knives razor sharp. And so I'm cleaning my knife, and I cut my finger deeper than I've ever cut it before. And I was bleeding more than I've ever bled before. And I'm like, ah, and I was so angry, and I was so upset. And if you said, Stephen, but you need to worship through that, I'd have been, just give me a few hours, all right? I, I mean, I get it. But all too often, we define God's faithfulness by our current circumstances. And we worship in response to our perception of God's faithfulness in our current circumstances. Paul says, you know, I've learned the secret in the book of Philippians. Which means not all of us are going to learn the secret. I want to learn the secret. He says, I've learned what it means to be content in plenty and in wants. In other words, I've, I've come to, to be content. I've come to see God's goodness in the good times and the bad times. And even in the bad times, I can look at God and say, what a beautiful, glorious God. In fact, in one of the most difficult times of Paul's life, Paul says, you know, another secret that I've learned that even if the tough time remains, God's grace is sufficient for me. I mean, think about these Israelites. We kind of just gloss over the story and we just think about the, the, the highlights of the story. But they've just been through slavery. There are families there singing this song where they're looking around them and they're like, dad is not with us because he was beaten to death. There were sons and daughters that didn't make it through 
the oppression and the slavery, whatever little they did own and whatever they couldn't carry was left behind. They're heading into no man's land. They don't know what's around the corner. They're literally nomadic refugees. They've got every reason not to worship. And yet they were so convinced of God's power. They were so convinced of what God had done and where God was leading them that they're like, how can we not worship even in these circumstances? Another way we make worship about me is we make it about my acts of worship. So subtle. You see, what it looks like is this. We go, Lord, I want to worship you. And Lord, I come to you in worship. And of course, we're involved. Of course, that there are going to be times where we say, Lord, I come to you in prayer. Lord, I come to you to offer your name. But sometimes we stay there. And if we analyze our prayers and analyze our songs, we're still looking at me and look at me. Look at my worship. Look how devoted I am. And at some point, the center of gravity needs to move far away from you to God. And then finally, sometimes we make it about the performance. Now listen, the beauty of the church is when gifted leaders lead, when gifted helpers help, when gifted teachers teach, when gifted worship leaders lead worship, when gifted musicians play, It's a win-win situation. The church wins. They win because they're edified in bringing their fishes and loaves to God and God's Spirit is empowering them. And God is magnified if we do it in a God-saturated way. And so I'm all for God-saturated excellence. But sometimes it can be so subtle Once again, no, I didn't enjoy worship today. Why? Ah, guitar was out of tune. Nah, my ear, let me tell you something about me. If it sounds bad to you, it sounds a hundred times worse to me. That's just the way my ear is. But that doesn't change who God is. And that doesn't determine the level of my worship. And even if the power went out, or even if every string on those guitars broke, we should still be able to worship our God because of His victory. Because that is what He is worthy of. The final thing I want to talk about from this song is let's talk about the depths and the riches of our worship. And what I mean by that is the contents with which we choose to praise God. What are these songs about here? We've already looked at the first half of the song is what God has done. The second half of the song is what God will do. But words are skillfully used. Metaphors are embraced. These songs are written with great skill, with great insight. We've got themes here of God's strength, God's worth, God's majesty, God's uniqueness, God's love, God's power, God's protection, God's salvation. We've got prophetic inferences, looking forward to Jesus Christ. There's such depth here. We could literally spend hours plumbing the depths of what we have in these pages. 
one of the videos that I sent to our worship team leaders a number of years ago is a video called How to Write a Worship Song in Five Minutes. And so he brings out this formula and the beginning of the formula is, you know, there's this four chord special. For those of you non-musicians, think of the song With or Without You. It's four chords. 90% of our worship songs are written with those four chords. And 90% of your pop songs, by the way. So anyway, here's your four chords. Done. Songwriting part is done. Now we need some lyrics. Ah, let's find some Christianese. Something about righteousness. Okay, now we need something that rhymes with righteousness. We get out the Christianese dictionary. We look for anything that rhymes with righteousness. Ah, that's good enough. Ooh, but, but we need some hallelujahs. Okay, let's throw some hallelujahs in here. And you know what's really cool? When you have like a throwback to an old hymn. So we're like, oh, I was once lost and now I'm found. And he kind of puts this together in a couple of minutes. And I'm just like laughing because I saw what he had done. But the sad part was I think to myself, if the average person hadn't watched the first four minutes, would they even know that this was the parody of what he was doing? I'm not one of these people at all who wants to write off all modern worship and paint it with the same paintbrush. Unfortunately, there is a whole lot of this kind of stuff out there. While this chapter here, chapter 15, doesn't say everything there is to say about God. It says so much about who God is, so much about His riches and His power and how we can worship Him. And so here at Riverside, we're always talking about this. Can we separate the wheat from the chaff and can we find those songs that plumb the depths with great insight and great integrity and also great artistry. And I believe this morning was such an experience. If we think about this idea of moving even from like what God has done to what we are doing, I was thinking about the song Amazing Grace. Think about the first stanza, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. But it was grace that brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. That could be right here in Exodus 15. But then the song looks forward. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise at when we first begun. And so let's shine a bright light on what God has done. Not only on our minds, but on our hearts. And let's shine a bright light on what God is going to do so we know where He's leading us and we know that there's a North Star out there and this grace is going to take me through these toils and troubles and snares of 2022. I want to read some of the words of the song we're about to sing and maybe Ben, if you can come up here. We're going to sing a song called What He's Done. I'm just going to ring some of the words here. Here's some of the words that speak about what God has done. See on the hill of Calvary, my Savior bled for me. My Jesus set me free. And look at the wounds that give me life, grace flowing from His side. No greater sacrifice. This is what God has done. Then looking forward to what He will do. Now on a throne of majesty, my Father's will complete. He reigns in victory. Sing hallelujah to the King. He's worthy to receive 
all the worship we can bring. See, my circumstances don't determine my worship. God's victory does. And so when we take our attention and our affection off these circumstances that have robbed us and we put our attention and our affection on the victorious king, something happens in us. And suddenly faith grows and hope grows. Even our internal composure changes as we gaze upon the face and the victory of Jesus. And we're going to have an opportunity to do just that. And so I'm going to pray. And as I'm praying, I invite you to stand. Jesus, we honor you for what you have done. For your victory over evil, sin, death, and hell. That we know that we are covered because of your sacrifice. And we choose to take our minds off of the toils and the troubles and the snares. We trust where you're taking us. We trust where you're leading us. And we choose to honor you with all of our strength and all of our minds and heart and soul because you are worthy, Jesus. Your victory determines our worship. Let us worship our God.